morning scripture reading will be from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 33 through 35. And that is John 13, verses 33 through 35. And I will be reading from the New King James Version. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we read the words of Jesus and the words of the apostles, and we read the prophets of the Old Testament and Uh, throughout our study of the Bible, we come to, I think, a pretty clear understanding that love is a very complicated thing, or at least it can be at times. Jesus told His disciples, again, verse 34 of our text, "...the new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another." Of course, we understand what a commandment is. A commandment is a prescribed rule in accordance with which a thing is done. So... If, according to Christ, we're going to love one another, we must love one another as He loved us. Now, how in the world was that a new commandment? It was new in that it was different in different ways to that which was commanded under the uh, old law. The law of Moses definitely contained an edict to love one another. We see that in Leviticus 19. Verse 18, but that was discharged within the narrow limits of the Jewish state. Of course, the commandment Jesus discharged uh, was new regarding its breadth, its width, and its scope. It was not just to our neighbor, as the law said, love your neighbor. It meant the whole world, to love all people whether they were your neighbor, whether they weren't your neighbor, whether they were your friend, or whether they were your enemy. And uh, Jesus commanded us that we love one another as He loved us. And I think that is the key point. That means to love each other because He loved us, right? He did what He did because He loved us. And to the extent humanly possible... We are to regard one another and love one another as He loves us. And we need to put forth great effort to do that. The motivation behind the love, I think, is the new aspect that Christ said. Because when we look at Christ with His immeasurable and limitless love, and He looks down upon us with that love, we're to love just as close to that as we are able. Here's what He is saying. You who are my disciples, love each other. You who believe in me, love each other. You who are my followers, love each other. You who are members of my church, love each other. And when you do that, the world will know that you are mine. The title of the sermon this morning is Living Up to the Commandment. The new commandment for which Jesus imparted to us. And if we're going to live up to that new commandment, to love each other in the way that He is prescribed, we need to understand some things about love and what God expects. The love of which Jesus spoke is not a selfish love. 
Jesus did not come to the world and say, Love me, uh, and then I will love you. Give me what I want, and then I will love you. That's not at all what He did. He simply came to the earth and He said, I love you. And because of that, we ought to love Him. God's love and the love He expects from each of us, if we're going to live up to the commandment, is a sacrificing love. That's our first point. A sacrificing love must have its roots in the family. The family is the first place any person encounters a sacrificing love, isn't it? Parents sacrifice for children. Uh, It happens all the time. People within that family unit sacrifice for one another. And that is the type of love of which Jesus spoke. But it must go beyond that family unit, shouldn't it? If we do not have that kind of love within the family, how can we have it toward those who hate us? It's going to be very difficult, isn't it? If we cannot love the Father we see, how can we love the Father we cannot see? And so it just stands to reason if we cannot interact with one another in the way Jesus has prescribed, we cannot interact with anyone else properly in the world. Now in his Roman letter, Paul pointed out a laundry list of terrible sins in which the Gentiles had involved themselves. Notice verse 31 of Romans 1. He condemned those without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful. Of course, without natural affection uh, affection involves that kind of love that we see in the family. A parent has a natural affection toward children, toward their children, right? Uh, Have you ever seen a child that perhaps you did not have a natural affection toward? Well, it wasn't your child, I can guarantee you that, right? And so we ought to uh, be able to have that natural affection. And that's why the family is the first place where we encounter uh, sacrificial love. Ephesians 5.25, Paul used the husband-wife relationship to describe the church and the Lord relationship. We're to love as he loved the church. In fact, he was very clear when he said, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And I think the Master sees the potential in each of us for that. And we have to have it. That doesn't mean someone who's not married can't love Christ that way or love the church that way. That's just the example of how we're supposed to go about doing it. And so we need to understand that. I think Christians are the embodiment of the mind of Christ in as far as we're physically able to be that way. Notice what uh, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now how is that possible? How do we have the mind of Christ? Throughout the Bible we understand and have been told that God's thoughts are not our thoughts that we cannot understand the secret things of God, or there are many things that we cannot understand when it comes to to God's mind. Well, we can certainly understand the things in God's mind that He's provided for us to understand. We have the mind of Christ because we have the New Testament. The Holy Spirit led John chapters 14, 15, and 16, led the the apostles into preaching the Word, into writing the letters, and all the other inspired writers to speak the things of Christ. And so we have the mind of Christ in, uh, in that aspect. Now let's listen to Paul's admonishment 
to the Philippian brethren. Philippians 4 verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And that's what we're supposed to do in a sacrificial love. We're to uh, live up to that commandment. Love each other as Christ loved us. And we demonstrate that sacrificial love. And we think of good things about our brethren. We think on the things that are noble and honest. And that doesn't mean that we overlook sin in any way, but that means that we are to think that way toward faithful brethren and we are to strive always to be faithful, to remain faithful, and to help each other be faithful. Someone says, well, shouldn't family love come easy? After all, why in the world would it be demanded by Paul to love members of the family? Well, it, it does come easy in a lot of aspects, doesn't it? But there's still times within a family when there are stressors involved. And so that's why that we're trained within the family. We learn respect for one another. We learn how to interact with one another. And we better learn it in areas that we might say are safe areas, right? Places where we know that people are going to love us no matter what. But we still need to be able to learn how to love and how to demonstrate that love toward one another. It's a lot easier to learn to love and to interact with one another in one's family than it is within a group of people that you barely know or maybe you don't know, right? So that's why we, we learn to do that. We learn to do that within the family. However, uh, a problem will arise when we do not grow into greater love, right? We need to always be continually growing. Do we ever make a mistake? In our love toward one another? Well, sure we do, but we, it is absolutely vitally necessary to overcome that, to continue to grow into better love. Paul warned this, Romans 5 beginning with verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. And we understand that, don't we? We can see that. Uh, it's not a common thing for people who are just uh, on a, on a uh, first-name basis or just someone that you may know in passing, it's not common for you to want to lay down your life for that individual, is it? Well, it's probably a little more common for someone to try to lay down their lives for someone who is a good person. Now, we might consider that, right? We see that all the time in the military, don't we? We see people in battle and uh, someone will give themselves to save the group. How many times have we read about a soldier going into the line of fire to make sure that his squad members can get to safety? Or someone falling on a grenade and them covering it up so the other people can live. So it's not normal to go through everyday life and say, well, I want to give myself for this person or that person or whatever. Now on occasion, if it's a good person, we might consider doing something like that, not normally going to give our lives for someone who is not an upstanding individual. But notice what Jesus did. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die because we were just in general people that He knew. 
He certainly didn't die for us because we were good people. He died for us so we could become good people, so we could stand justified, and He died for us when we were in need of that. When our love matures and grows, it will become a sacrificing love, and that's learned in the family. And when it comes and continues to grow, the world can see it in the lives of the faithful. I think it is a common occurrence to see a Christian put the needs of others before his or her own. I think we're used to seeing that. We have, uh, within our group, we see that regularly. People giving themselves for the betterment of others. There's a story told about a Christian doctor who went to China and he built a hospital and he cared for the sick and he was there for many years and he put a lot of effort in that and one day the army came through and simply just destroyed all of his hard work and killed several of them. And though he was mistreated, uh, he followed the army and he continued to care for the sick. Well, at some point, the, the leader of that particular force was speaking with his wife and he said, I don't understand that. How could he do that? And she said, he must be a Christian. And that uh, leader of that particular force said, well, if that's what being a Christian is, he said, I want to be one. Now, whether or not that story is true, I don't know. I wouldn't doubt that it's true because people make an impact. Christians make an impact on the people of the world. Notice what Jesus said again. Let's go back to our text, John thirteen thirty-five. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. If we're going to live up to the commandment, love one another. Our love must be a sacrificing love, but it must also be a purifying love. That's our second point. It purifies because it cleanses. Now whose love are we supposed to emulate? Christ's love. What does Christ's love do? It purifies us. It's a cleansing love, right? Let's return to Paul as he explained why husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. He said, let's pay attention, Ephesians 5 beginning with verse 26. He said that he might sanctify and cleanse it. What? The church. With the washing of water by the word. What does that mean? He's talking about the plan of salvation that he might present it to himself a glorious church. It can't be a glorious church unless it's a purified church, unless it's a cleansed church. Of course, the church is purified. The church is cleansed. But each individual must become purified, must become cleansed to make up that body. He goes on saying, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. His great love is the source of that cleansing, right? The Christian has had his or her sins cleansed and that makes the church one that has no blemish. And we need to emulate that. Notice how he explained to his disciples exactly how that worked. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 26 beginning with verse 27. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for, excuse me, for the remission of sins. His blood was shed. He gave his life so our sins could be cleansed, so we could be purified. 
And that's the example. To be cleansed, we have to come into contact with that blood, right? We understand how that happens. Absolutely necessary. And Paul was very straightforward in Romans 6, 3, and 4 when he said that, that we're buried or baptized into the death of Christ. That's where we come into that contact. Of course, before we do that, we have to learn about Him, right? We have to learn about what Christ, what He offers for us. When we begin to learn about His action and His selfless sacrificing and purifying love, that builds faith in us. And we learn to believe on Him for who He said He was. The writer of Hebrews talks about faith. Hebrews eleven six for But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So that's a working faith. That's a faith that continues. We reject worldliness through uh, repentance, Acts 17, verse 30. We make the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans 10, 10, Paul said that that confession brings us unto salvation. We see the Ethiopian eunuch making that statement. Then we're immersed in water. Uh, We meet Christ's blood in that water. We meet Christ's blood in that water. And that's why Peter said, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism doth also now save us. Not like taking a bath, putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God. Then we continue to grow in the knowledge. But our love must also be a cleansing love, mustn't it? If we're going to emulate Christ's love, we have to have a cleansing love. When we demonstrate love toward one another, toward those who are penitent, well, we're able to cover a multitude of sins, right? We have to have enough love for our brethren to encourage them to repent. That's what love is, isn't it? Not overlooking sin. When we talk about covering a multitude of sin, we're not talking about overlooking sin. We're talking about encouraging those to repent who are in sin. That's what Peter meant when he made that statement, 1 Peter 4, 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And we know that's what he meant because of what James said. James 5, beginning with 19, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, those who have obeyed the gospel, those who have become faithful and they leave the church or they leave the truth. He's talking to Christians. He says, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he who converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. We're not covering up the sin. We're not leaving the sin in place and just ignoring the sin. We have to encourage each other to repent of those sins. We have to love each other. And we have to offer forgiveness of those sins. We see that in 2 Corinthians, right? Paul reminded them what they uh, rightly withdrawing their fellowship from a brother who was uh, caught up in adultery with his stepmother. And Paul said, uh, in essence, he said, you forgave him. And now let's encourage him, right? That's what we do to each other. We forgive and we encourage. It's a cleansing love. To live up to the commandment, we must have a cleansing love. We must have a caring love. Our love has to be caring. Paul charged the husband to love and to cherish his wife. He said, for not 
For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Ephesians 5, 29. God has seen to our needs in this life, and the Christian is to follow that same example. We must have a caring love. James said this, James 2, beginning with verse 14, a very familiar passage for us, but I think it speaks to the point. He said, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you do not give them those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And so, what good does it do someone to tell you you love them, and you allow them to continue in a sin in their life? We're not showing love by overlooking the sin. We want to have a cleansing love, a purifying love, right? A caring love. And that's what James is talking about. We don't want to demonstrate our love to someone who uh, is in dire need of some kind of physical help in this life. And we say, all right, well, go on. I hope that you're, you're warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, we don't give them those things necessary for the body. What does it profit that? It doesn't profit that individual anything, does it? They still are in the same position they were. So we must care and help each other when it's necessary and when we have the opportunity, Galatians 6.10, right? It's not our job as the church or our job as individuals to keep the world up when they will not provide for themselves. But it is our job to help those when they legitimately need help and when we have opportunity to help them. If we're going to live up to the commandment, we have to have a sacrificing love. We have to have a purifying love, and we have to have a unifying love. That's our third and last point. If we embrace His love, we can unite in His one body. He only has one body. Christ is the one head to the one body. What happens in this physical life if you see something, and it happens from time to time. We see it in the animal world. Uh, I just read... Uh, the other day a snake was found it had two heads you see turtles with two heads you go to these different uh, fairs and places and they'll have a uh, an example of a sheep that has two heads you know people are born that way from time to time right I read not too awfully long ago somewhere I think it might have been in China a young a baby was born a, a boy and, and he had a he had two heads of course the one head was simply uh, uh didn't continue to grow and so it was just more of a parasitic type thing they had to remove that what do we do when we see something with two heads it's not normal it doesn't uh it's not going to live it can't live that way right we're not talking about conjoined twins or something like that we're talking about an abnormal uh and something that's abnormal where you have two heads what about have you ever seen a person with one head and two bodies you know, we see certain aspects of that, don't we? We see certain aspects of that in the past where a person would have a non-developed twin and he may have extra legs or he may have an attachment. And so how do, what do we have there? That's an abnormality, isn't it? It's not going to survive. It can't. Christ has one head. He has one body. Anything other than that 
is abnormal. We understand that in every aspect of life. So we have to have a unifying love. And we can unite in the one body. Now let's go back to Ephesus. And listen, let's listen to Paul continue his sermon, Ephesians 5 verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, he said. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, what happens when a mystery is revealed? No longer a mystery, right? And that's what Paul's talking about. The church at one time was a mystery. Christ came into the world. He established His one body, of which He is the one head, Colossians 1.18, Ephesians 2.22 and 23. And the mystery was unveiled. It's no longer a mystery. Now what Paul's doing, he's using a literary device to point back, and he's calling it that mystery of which the prophets and the angels did not uh, wholly understand. Peter said the angels in heaven looked into it, wanting to understand uh, the manifold wisdom of God. But now it's revealed. And so he says, I'm talking about that same mystery. So no longer would followers of God be separated by nationality, by tribe, or by anything else. We can be united into that one body. Isaiah 2, 2 through 3 talks about the prophecy of one day people meeting in the top of the mountain talking about Jerusalem. And people from all nations would go and they would learn the ways of God. And we see that reveal itself. Acts chapter 2. Paul or Peter and the other apostles spoke those beautiful words and he explained along with the eleven exactly how that prophecy of Isaiah would be fulfilled. Acts 2, we're very familiar, beginning with verse 38. After having been asked what to do to have their sins removed, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, a lot of the times we want to leave off and you should receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and we don't want to continue into the next verse but it's there for a reason. Verse 39, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. We'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this isn't a sermon about the gift of the Holy Spirit as long as we recognize it's not miraculous. That's okay. It can be whatever we think it is. I have an idea on what I believe it is, but as long as it's not miraculous, we can get along with that, right? The idea is, is to you, to your children, and to those who are far off, because it's a unifying love, and it brings people into one body. Who are the far off? Us, the Gentile, right? Thank God for that. So we're brought into one body. Remember, we're not separated by nationality, by tribe, or anything else. It's a unifying love. Later, Paul emphasized Christ's statement, Matthew 16, 18. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. When Paul said this, he's going back to that statement, Ephesians 4, beginning with 4. There's one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. If there's one faith, there's one body. If there's more than one body, there's more than one faith. If there's more than one body, there's more than one head. If there's more than one head, there's more than one Father. There's more than one Spirit. We know that can't be the case. That cannot be the case. And on that day of Pentecost, 
about 3,000 were added and they formed the very first congregation of the Church of Christ, Acts 2.47. If we're going to live up to the commandment, we must have a unifying love of one body. And that is what Jesus prayed for, John 17.21. And we must work to build up that one body, right? That just makes sense. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not a, it's not a sit-on-the-sideline sport. It's not, I've got a pew and, and don't sit in my pew, which we, we kind of have assigned seating, but that's okay. But we need to be able to get up out of that seat and do the work of God, right? It's not uh, to watch someone else. When we come to worship, it's not a, we're not spectating. We're not watching people. We are to engage in worship. We're not the audience. God is the audience. The body being unified in love. And when we unify in love, under God's helm, we're kind of like a football team. Now, that's kind of a sore subject right now. I don't know if we ought to mention that, but that's a pretty good example. You have 11 players on either side, right? They do all different things. All 11 of those players do something different in some way. They do something similar, right? Several of them are blocked. They know how to do that. Some of them can fall into pass protection. One of them throws the ball. A few of them can catch. But see, they work together in one unit, or at least they should. And that's how the church is. Armies are composed of thousands of men and women. What's their one goal? To protect and serve, right? To protect the the nation, to serve its people. There are all kinds of different people, but they have one goal in mind. A band has different instruments, right? I enjoy going to listen to the symphony. They have a a myriad of different instruments and they all work together and they read off the same sheet of music and they have the same melody. That is the church. We build together or we fall apart. Lord Nelson of England was about to enter an important battle and and he had heard two of his officers were at odds with each other. So he called them into his his tent, they were about to go into battle, and he reached out and he said, Give me your hands, and each one of them placed their hand into his hands. And he looked at them, he said, Now, gentlemen, remember, the enemy is out there. They weren't enemies. Does that mean we can't disagree? No, something's wrong if we agree on everything, probably. Because there are a whole lot of matters of opinion that in the long run doesn't make any difference one way or the other. But, If we disagree in the things that matter, then we have a big problem. The love of God wants His church to be what it should be. He wants His church to be tough, caring, loyal, enduring. He wants us to see beyond human emotions like selfishness. He wants us to look beyond that. The church... It's supposed to give, it is supposed to uplift, it is supposed to build, it is supposed to unite. The psalmist said it best, I believe, when he said this, Psalm 133, 1. He said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When Jesus said, love one another, it went beyond the initial observation of those words, didn't it? When he said love one another, he meant, have a sacrificing love, have a purifying love, and have a uniting love. And what will that love do? 
Notice what that love has accomplished. It reflects Christ. It completes the law. It results in uh, salvation. It is evidence of Christianity. It is a demanded commandment. It is a response to God loving us. And it is available right now. If we're going to live up to the commandment, we have to have all of those elements in our love. If it's not there, it's not godly love, right? We don't want a worldly love, a selfish love, where we love ourselves more than anything else, but that love is available. We talked about how to initially gain that love through uh, a salvation from the non-believer, the non-Christian becoming a Christian. Faith and repentance, confession, Immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins and faithful living. And we have to understand that love, again, is a purifying love, it's a cleansing love, and it's a caring love. And so God made provision for His people who make mistakes to be able to have their sins purified, to have them cleansed, and so He can demonstrate care for that person. And we need to be, able, need to be willing to do that for each other also. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. If you have and you've become unfaithful for whatever reason, ask God to forgive you. Repent of that. If it's necessary to make a public confession, do that as we stand and as we sing.